Please open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. So we continue our study as we return back to the Gospel of John from a detour. Here we are again in chapter 9 and the first portion of the chapter. As we find, as we read about the healing of the man born blind. The title of my message this morning is Acclamation in Affliction. Acclamation in Affliction. Affliction, distress, or suffering is common to all of us on some level. Severe or minor, everyone suffers under affliction. At some point, some more than others. We first find suffering or affliction in Genesis 3 as a consequence of the fall of man. And we also learn from Revelation 21 and 22 that suffering will be no longer for those who trust in Christ, for those who will be in heaven when they die. It says no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Bible also teaches that those who reject Jesus Christ in their life, refusing to follow him, refusing to repent of their sin, their suffering will be much worse in eternity, much worse than while they were living in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So between the beginning, as we find in Genesis And the consummation, the second coming of Christ, there is the question of human suffering. Why and how to respond to human suffering, human affliction. We'll seek to somewhat answer that this morning. As we go through our points, I'll list them for you now before we go and see the text where we will be. There's the question of affliction. And then we find the world's response to affliction, and then some reasons for affliction, and then glory to God in affliction, and then hope above the affliction. Our verses for us this morning in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Remember, I... um, encouraged us to have this understanding that this was uh, briefly after his time in the temple, uh, that they were seeking to throw stones at him. And it seems that this man uh, who was born blind would be near the temple where they commonly were, those who had ailments of such, and they would um, be out there and they would beg, and um, they would be there sitting all day long at times, uh, every day. And this is where they were. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming where no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Lord, again, I ask that you would help me to be faithful to your text. God, that you would change hearts where needed, O Lord. 
encourage, rebuke, give joy, help, and comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find here Jesus once again with his disciples. It was obvious to them that this man was blind, physically blind. And we remember that there is the double meaning here, as we'll find as we study throughout chapter 9. He is physically blind, but he is also born blind spiritually. And Jesus heals both of his ailments. It seems to be a question that they ask out of genuine desire to know. His disciples asking him a, a, a question with good intentions. Was it something that this man did to deserve this? Or was it his parents' fault? They want to know who sinned. Who sinned to make it so that this man was born blind? His disciples were careful in questioning to avoid putting any blame on God as a possible cause for this man's blindness. Perhaps they were going back to the Old Testament, which they were very well versed in, to Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, the second commandment, which says, You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship him or serve them. For I, being the Lord... I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there's that at the end we have to keep in mind. Also in Numbers 14, 18, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Yet we find passages in the Old Testament that challenge the disciples' thinking on this, that a person would suffer because of the sins of his parents. Two texts I can think of in the Old Testament that I will uh, just read for you. You can write them down. Jeremiah 31, uh, 29 through 30, and then also Ezekiel 18, 24, or actually 14 through 20. So Jeremiah, first off, 31, 29 and 30. In those days they will not eat, say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And then in Ezekiel 18, 14 through 20, now behold... He who has a son who has observed all of his father's sins, which he committed, and observing, does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or oppress anyone, or retain a pledge, or commit robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with clothing, and keeps his hand from the poor, does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances, said the Lord, so we see obedience to God here, and walks in my statutes. You can do that, only the redeemed, only those who know God. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good amongst his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? 
When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and had observed all of my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So the point is, we find both teachings there. The disciples asked a legitimate question. Also in Jewish culture at this time, some believe that uh, children were able to sin in the womb and that blindness or, or birth defects were the consequences. And this is an idea that Jesus dismisses. Not saying that uh, those are not born in sin, but a sin actually committed in the womb that would lead to a blindness or lead to some type of physical ailment. This was uh, some thinking in Jewish culture at the time. Jesus and Paul both acknowledge that suffering can be the consequence or result of sin. We studied Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, as we looked at the consequences on a society. What a society looks like under the judgment of God. Why are they there? Because of their sin. Because of a turning from God. A refuse to acknowledge God. A, refuge, a refusal to worship Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus also said after healing the man uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus then found him in a temple after he was healed, and he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. So if we put two and two together there, his personal individual sin, this man's sin, had something to do with his uh, his ailments, why he was uh, not well. And then Jesus says, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. And in Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.30, the instructions and warnings when taking the Lord's Supper, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But on the other hand, suffering is not always the result of indwelling sin. I invite you to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. So we see suffering the consequences of sin, and then we'll find here suffering and or affliction, not always the result of an indwelling sin. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse one, and then we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Luke 13, beginning in verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? Was it because of what they did that was worse? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A familiar text that is uh, useful and that is misused oftentimes. It's very applicatory in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 7. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh. And he's uh, imploring God, the Lord, three times that it would leave him. In verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. To keep him from becoming proud and exalting himself, he was given this thorn in the flesh. What's this thorn in the flesh? It says it right here, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Suffering to keep Paul, affliction to keep Paul from exalting himself. A messenger of Satan to torment him. And as we read in the Gospel of Luke, this was a warning to others. Why did this happen to those? It was to be a warning to others. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, just like them. That that happened to. So there is suffering we bring on our own selves due to our own sin. Sinful, foolish choices that bring suffering, not only to our own individual lives, but to the lives of our family, to the lives of our church, and further extending out to others. Suffering or affliction because of sinful choices. Also, suffering is a part of our sanctification to mold us, to shape us, to help us in ways we cannot see at the time. And we may not see at the time on this side of glory. We may not know, God, why did I even go through that? Sometimes God lifts the veil back. Sometimes he shows us his hand. And he shows us the silver linings in our sufferings. And we say, oh, okay, thank you, Lord. Now I have a better understanding. Jesus gives the answer for the particular scenario in John 9, 3, which we'll see in a moment. But let's look at the world's response to affliction. Some worldly responses to affliction. So there's the question of affliction. We see it is there. There are some reasons for it. And then secondly, the world's response to affliction. Ways that we should not respond uh, to affliction, to suffering. Well, first, there is the blaming of God. We hear that often. This is the world's go-to for, for, for suffering, for affliction. Blaming a God, even though at the same time, they may say that God doesn't exist. They may say they're an atheist, but in the next breath, they will blame God for suffering for something that happened in their life. For some type of affliction. Why is God doing this to me? Would be a question that would be asked. Or how could a loving God do that? How could a loving God allow this to happen to so and so and their family? And this type of tragedy. How could they allow that? How could God allow that to happen? 
And the next day, not even believing in the one true God, according to their statements. Blaming God. As Christians, we at times can do this. We at times can wrongly do this. Blame God for things in our lives. Blaming others. Blaming others. Another uh, excuse for affliction. Now, let's just take, let me take a side note for a moment. If somebody does something towards us that is sinful, and it's their fault, it is their fault, and there should be consequences. Yes, we understand that. And we would say, well, who's to blame here? Well, I, I didn't do anything. I was an innocent party in this, and they, they did something to me. They committed a crime against me or whatever it is. But blaming others like as a generational judgment. Uh, This is happening in his life, or he is this way because of his genetic disposition, because of his genes, because he is from such and such, or that's his lineage. That's why he's angry all the time. That's why he's this way, or that's why he is that way. Ancestry suffering, or curses. And I thought about that because uh, my, my mother... She used to say, uh, it's, uh, it's, when bad things would happen, she would say, it's the Tylers. It's the Tylers. These things always happen to the Tylers. And, uh, you know, as a little kid, I was like, okay, I guess there's something to that. But, uh, of course, it has nothing to do with uh, my ancestry for the reason that I was the way I was, for the sin that I committed uh, in my own life, for being rebellious as a Child, or for a God in His providence allowing things to take place in my life, ultimately to bring me to a spot to where I would bow the knee to Jesus. I thought about this and, and, and I said, Well, I, there may be an exception here, uh, the Kennedy family. You know, there's a lot, you, you read that and you hear, Wow, this happened so many times, so many times, but then you look at sin involved as well. I jest there, there with the exception, but that's tragic situations that happen to that family. Other, uh, other excuses or other uh, blame shifting, blame that comes from false systems of belief, uh, uh, unbiblical worldviews such as karma. Bad things happen in your life or as a result of bad things you have done or bad things you've done in a previous life. Again, when I was a kid, I was terrified at times to step on a cockroach because that might have been someone's uncle or someone's uh, aunt. That's what was tried to be ingrained in me by, you know, whoever. But, I mean, I must have uh, really snuffed out a lot of uh, relatives because there was a lot of them. But this, uh, this karma, you, this is who I, I think he was so-and-so in a previous life. Or she was this type of uh, person or animal in a previous life. But the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. So one verse alone completely denies and completely uh, shuts down that world system. That false system. And there are others as well, responses of the world, that we must not fall trap into. And then we look for reasons for affliction. Reasons for affliction. Now, it is, um, I am from Florida, But I will tell you, I am warm. 
So, this is not a fashion statement or anything. I'm just getting warm. Reasons for affliction. Why is there suffering? Well, the root cause, the overarching reason for suffering is sin. Why do we see suffering? Why do we see death? Why do we see affliction? Why do we see a sin-cursed world? Ultimately, it goes back to the root cause, sin. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we find that affliction and trials and sufferings can be linked directly to sin and indirectly related to sin and not directly related to a particular sin. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. We see what we see. Primarily, we go back to the root cause and we say, Sin. Joe Beakey says, Much of the affliction experienced by the saints consists of suffering in solidarity with their fallen race. Suffering, death, decay characterizes the world of this age because of sin. Suffering also comes when God judges a nation. We can read that in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, and then we see what the New Testament in the book of Hebrews says about that particular verse. Hebrews chapter 12, I'll just read it for us, 26 through 29. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, believer, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." When under affliction, we remember who God is and what he has said and the kingdom that will be shaken and the kingdom that will not be shaken. So reasons for affliction, what does, what does affliction do for us, for the people of God? Well, as Christians, we know that we are no longer under condemnation. Praise God, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We are no longer under condemnation. No longer under the curse of the law. God does not punish us as we deserve. For those in Christ, Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Christ our Redeemer has suffered in our place. Yet we know through the Word of God that we will experience trials, suffering, affliction in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9, and then 1 Peter chapter 4, I invite you to turn there. 
First Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9, and in First Peter chapter 4, as we consider affliction in this life, trial in this life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 of chapter 1, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Whatever you're going through this morning, child of God, this verse right here, no matter what, you have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away. The reservation is already there. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And then remember from last week, uh, we will see him in, in glory. We will see the Lord. And 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. If you're in a fiery ordeal this morning, a fiery affliction this morning, do not be surprised, which it comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange things were, were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So we don't rejoice in the pain or in the, the affliction or the suffering as that. We don't say, this is great, this really hurts, and I love the pain. No, we rejoice in Christ because he's the one who is navigating us through it. He's the one that is with us through the suffering and through the affliction. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, if you have family members who revile you, who do not like you, who may even hate you because of who you are in Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is a time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it was with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So for the one who rejects Christ, this really truly is their best life now. As the false teacher Joel Osteen says, your best life now, this is it, this is it. No, no, our best life is yet to come. 
We are with Christ now and he, he navigates us through. But one day we will be in glory with him forever and for eternity. And for those who reject Christ, this is as good as it gets. It is going to get much worse for you. Some reasons for our affliction as well, to humble us. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes when we're proud in heart in a certain area, that Louisville slugger, spiritually speaking, comes right at the knee to humble us. Exposing our deficiencies when it comes to relying and and trusting in God to see us through. And rather, entrusting in our own sufficiencies or our own strategies or the world's strategies rather than trusting where we should trust in Christ. Exposing our self-reliance rather than recognizing our need for Him in all things. Whether it be in famine, whether it be in wilderness, or in dark places, Christ is with us. Through affliction and suffering, God exposes also, He exposes our sins. Not only for the believer does He expose our sins, but He shepherds us back to Him. When he exposes sins in our heart and we say, I, I, I see that now. And you're convicted, we're convicted of it. And we go to God and we plead with God for forgiveness. Uh, God, I'm so sorry I did that. I did it once again. Or I, I see it now. I see the sin of my heart and I repent of it. And I, I turn back and I want to draw near to you. And he shepherds us back to him. And the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So sometimes affliction is necessary for a Christian who's just kind of going along in life and, and, goes, and goes astray. And then affliction comes. Bam! And then they confess their sin and, and God shepherds us back. In Psalm 32, 3 through 5. I didn't write the whole verse down, so I'm going to have to read it. A familiar text for us. A familiar psalm for us. No need to turn there. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. When I kept silent about my sin, this is a psalm of David, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, O God, and my iniquity I did not hide. Then I said, I I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You can feel the pressure on him when he was not confessing his sin, and then the release and the relief when he truly sought forgiveness from the Lord and confessed his sin. Puritan Thomas Watson, sin unrepented of ends in tragedy. It has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. God would soon, would sooner we had holy pain than unholy pleasure. John Bunyan said, it is said that in some countries, trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there's no winter there. 
The Christian needs the winter of affliction if he is to experience the spring of blossoming, the summer of growing, and the autumn of harvesting. Also, affliction comes in our lives directly at times by the Lord to discipline us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, says Hebrews chapter 12. Affliction is also useful in our lives to wean us from our love for the world, or to wean us from the things of this world. Do not love the world nor the things of the world, in the world, excuse me. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So there is the love nots we're supposed to have in our lives. We are to love not the world, nor the the things in the world. Who are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor. Also, suffering is used to wean us from idols in our lives. And so that we would abstain from all appearance of evil. Affliction, suffering, I realize I'm using these words interchangeably. Suffering comes to mind more than affliction, but affliction is um, what I tried to uh, write down here. So I, I keep going back and forth with those two terms. But it is useful in drawing us near the Lord. Drawing us near the Lord. The valleys of life are oftentimes the places where God draws us nearer to Him and draws us into deeper communion with Him. Psalm 30, verse 5, For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night, but a joy, a shout of joy, comes in the morning. You know those times in our life when we go through and it's really hard. And there is weeping. And there is pain. Maybe we have a broken or crushed heart. Not because of anything we have done. We examine ourselves and we say, you know, there's nothing I see, Lord, that I have done in this. This is something that has been sent my way. An affliction, but it hurts. As one man I know used to say, yes, but the rocks still hurt. God is sovereign in these things, in all things, in the, the rocks, though they still hurt, don't they? But a shout of joy comes in the morning. Those times when we're going through difficulties, we're going through painful circumstances, grieving or hurting, but then the Lord just gives us those glimpses of hope. He gives us those periods of times of joy. He doesn't leave us nor forsake us. Through afflictions, the Christian is conformed into the image of Christ. 
Philippians 1.6, he who began a work in us will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's encouraging because we're a work in progress. That's an encouraging verse for, for us in our sanctification. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. It's for our holiness as well that affliction comes in our life. That's what Hebrews 12 uh, verse 10 or verse 18 says. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Affliction is also God is preparing us for the age to come. We're in this age. He's preparing us for the age to come. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Puritan John Trapp, He who rides to be crowned will not think much of a rainy day. Perspective, brother and sister. As we, several of us, four of us, myself included, hiked Mount Monadnock the other day. It was a Friday, and I've hiked it, I don't know, three or four times before. I think it's like four miles or something round trip. But it was terrible humidity. Terrible heat. And I won't say if I complained about it verbally or not. To those who are with me, they can attest to that. But usually in a hike, I don't necessarily stop and sit down and take a break. We'll stop, get some water, and we'll keep going. Or we'll move slower for a little bit, catch our breath, and keep going. But I had to stop multiple times. It was just hard. And I was thinking about what I was going through rather than thinking about the top. Rather than thinking about the summit. Thought about turning back for about a moment. Wouldn't consider it considering I'd never hear the end of it. But it was, it was hot. It was humid. It was afflicting when you're used to hiking in different uh, temperatures or environments or whatever. But once you get to the summit, you don't think of all of that time. Once you're there, all of this goes away. Once you're there, you're there. And you rest. Our life is like that. We're on our way to the summit by God's grace. To heaven. And when we're there, it's the eternal rest. And we won't be thinking about this, the time to get there. The affliction. The suffering. And now as we are through that time, going towards the summit, let our focus be fixed upon Christ. Rather than our afflictions. The overarching reason for the question of human affliction in this world is answered in verse 3. It's specific for this particular man. Specific for uh, reasons and also overarching reason. John chapter 3. Fifth point. Glory to God in affliction, or acclamation of God in affliction. Jesus answered them when they asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, 
But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man's physical blindness was not because of sin in this man, nor is it because of a sin his parents committed. Jesus was not saying that this man was sinless. He was saying it was neither that this man sinned. It wasn't because of what he did. It wasn't because of his sin. But it was because so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that God might be glorified. He's not saying his parents never sinned either in their life. We recognize that the suffering is due to sin ultimately as the fall of man. No fall of man, no suffering introduced into the world. But this man's affliction, affliction was present so that Christ would be glorified. We find similar statements in the Gospel of John, Lord willing, that we will get to with uh, Lazarus. Jesus heard this. He said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. That's why Lazarus was raised from his dead, from the dead, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. And then he tells Peter something about his death that would be to come in 21, uh, chapter 19. Or Acts, excuse me, John chapter 21, verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And this isn't speaking of Peter going to be in a nursing home or something somewhere that they would have to walk him along. Jesus tells him. Now this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. It is said of Peter that he was crucified upside down because he did not, he did not, he said, I am not worthy enough to be crucified as my Savior was crucified. That's what it is said of him. This man was born blind so that the power of God would be displayed and Christ would be glorified by opening his eyes so that he could see. It was the sixth sign thus far in John. Christ's divine works revealed his glory. F.F. Bruce reminds us that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by receiving his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And in fact, he did see Jesus right then and there. Consider the power of God that Christ holds in his hands. He does what is impossible for man, but with God it is only possible. He has all power in heaven and earth to make the blind man see. Who gets glory in these these works? Christ does. And we remember the double meaning here. The man was healed of his physical blindness and healed of his spiritual blindness as well. Christ is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. Is there any spiritual disease that he cannot take away? He opens the eyes of the most sinful. He is able to shine the light in the most darkest heart and say, come and follow me. The true light has come into the world. Also, 
Affliction is useful in the lives of lost sinners in order that Christ would redeem them. We find that with one of the criminals that was on the cross next to Jesus when he was also on the cross in Luke chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now these men were crucified. These men were suffering. They were under affliction. He says in verse 41, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, Christ, he has done nothing wrong. And so as this man, this criminal on the cross, both of them were hurling abuses at him, and then one came to his senses. One turned to Jesus as he was in affliction, as he was suffering agony. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The Savior on the cross, the criminals on the cross, one under affliction, one criminal under affliction turned to Jesus. Jesus saved him at the last hour. And then the the Savior on the cross, one who was suffering and had done nothing wrong, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The suffering servant was suffering for us. As he was bearing the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. He did nothing wrong, yet was afflicted for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. Finally, for us, a hope above affliction. Hope above affliction. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says we. He's including his disciples in this. And he's including us in this. When he says we must work, this isn't a suggestion. He's saying we must do the works of him. These heaven-sent heaven sent works, these God-ordained works. And we say, well, what works are those? Well, what is the central reason Jesus Christ came? To seek and to save that which was lost. The most glorious of the works of God is displayed in saving a hell-bound hell-deserving sinner, raising a dead man to life and opening his eyes. Well, how are we involved? Well, Jesus says, a reminder, a verse we've been hearing recently, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When do we do this, Lord? Now, while it is day. Night is coming. And it'll be too late. I was on a conversation, phone conversation with a brother the other day. A friend of his, his wife passing away. She passed away. People pass away, die each and every day, sometimes unexpected. And when they take their last breath, it's too late if they know not Christ. Night is coming. It will be too late. This urgency. Christians, we ought to be redeeming the time. How? How are we to redeeming the time, ultimately? Offering hope to those under eternal affliction, which is the lost man's eternal direction. The days are dark. The days are evil. Christ is the light of the world, and he has made us lights to be in this world. Night is approaching. And maybe some are here or still walking in darkness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Enter through the narrow gates before the gates are shut on you forever. And for Christians in here this morning, there's a poem that was written entitled by an unknown author, Dark Threads, The Weaver's Needs. It says this, My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the patterns that he has planned. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you are an ever-present help in time of need. Thank you no matter what affliction, no matter what pain that comes our way. Whether it be like Job, whether it be like Paul, whether it be like Peter, whether it be physical pain, emotional sorrow, You're the God of all comfort. You're the God who sees us through. While you may not remove our ailments, our afflictions, this side of glory, we have the hope of heaven where you will wipe away every tear. You will end all pain. And we will be with you for eternity. To that we look forward to you, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name I pray, amen.